time of Reagan, and before the rise of Seagal, Snipes, and Van Damme, there was an age undreamed of. Unto this land came Arnold the Austrian. He was a barbarian, a demigod, a killer robot from the future, and he was destined to wear the crown of Hollywood upon a troubled brow. It is only his chroniclers, Mike Gillis and Casey Doran, who can tell you of his legend. This is his saga. Podcast de la Vista, baby. Well, that's not what I expected. Uh, Arnold's daughter is a super freak. She's super freaky. So... Oh, man. I, let's just get right into it, because we're going to talk this month about a really unexpected movie, um, 2015's Maggie, directed by Henry Hobson. This is his lone feature film. Uh, he mostly does art direction for other movies, mm-hmm. mostly the on-screen graphics, opening titles, end credits for movies like Rango, The Lone Ranger, and The Help, and even for video games like The Last of Us. It's a really curious place for a director of a film to come from is the guy who makes titles. Yeah, I, kn- <laughs> I wouldn't have seen that. Yeah. And uh, written by John Scott Three. I think he's a clone. I just trying to. Think I was. About I this. was trying to figure that out. There I were two more before him, and, and we're not talking third. like John John Scott. You know, I I I like John Scott the Third. We're not talking about Roman. We're talking about the Arabic the, numeral three, like the IMDb thing when you have a really common name. Right. And yeah. So I either he's a clone or he's an android of some kind. He's the writer of this. I couldn't find anything else other than a few shorts that he's written. Me neither. So it seems like this is the lone uh, feature film for a bunch of people. Right. Uh, though I do understand that this was on the the script. Um, what is it? They call, what do they call the that? The blacklist. The blacklist. Yes. Which is the opposite of what it is. It's yes. the scripts that people don't understand. These are the scripts that should be made. And have. it's just a really interesting one. This is... To really but get into it, we should introduce our guest who's going to be getting into it. Okay, so let's <laughs> let's get right into it. Uh, we are joined for the first time on the show by the chair of the Puget Sound Socialist Party and author of Inherited Secrets: Memoir of America's Groundbreaking Genetic Witness, Chelsea Rusted. Thank you, Chelsea, for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It is, uh, of course, a pleasure to be here, and um, it was an interesting experience to uh, go through this film and. Um, because I, you know, I had definitely have watched and enjoyed Arnie films in the past. I don't know what I expected, but it was <laughs> it was definitely different. So I'm I'm excited to get into it. So you you kind of already hit on it. Um, since it is your first time in the show, one of the things we like to ask people is first, what is your history with the movies of Arnold Schwarzenegger, and would you consider yourself a fan? Yeah, I mean. I think that if you're talking about, you know, action movies, Arnold is the archetype, right? Like he, especially from like the 80s and 90s, he is just kind of the it man for a lot of really iconic films. I don't buy a lot of DVDs because I don't find a lot of movies purchase worthy, but I own Predator and I own Terminator 2 and I own True Lies. And I think that a lot of those movies that he made the character, he embodies that that character of just this ultra masculine, super cool American dude who's kicking everybody's ass and has the perfect one-liner for every scene. And a lot of it's 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 kind of funny in retrospect. So some of it might not hold up to modern standards, but there's an element <laughs> to it that's really timeless. And 
he his his delivery is it's it's funny and it can also be moving and you know he has some range as an actor but this is how people see him as is the Mr. Olympus with just a bandolier strapped to him absolutely mowing down bad guys and <laughs> um and so so to see him outside of his element is an interesting prospect. I can see why you why this project happened. Perhaps we want to see like what if you take this this guy and put him in this role. You know what what can he do with it? Um, but that's kind of like the extent where I appreciated him most. Mm-hmm. So really getting into it, if you had to sum up the plot of this movie in like a paragraph or two, like the back of the DVD, what is Maggie all about? So. If I had to describe what happened in Maggie, it was essentially about uh, Arnie's daughter who is going out into what's seemingly like a, a condemned or ruined city for reasons that are unclear, gets infected by what is effect- essentially a zombie virus in this film, and then we, the rest of the movie is watching the slow motion horrible demise of what feels like an analogy for terminal illness and and it's and it feels more and more hopeless as it drags on and you keep thinking there's going to be like there's going to be a twist and and like there was a reason that it happened and and maybe they'll get a cure and like no it does it does not (laughs) give you any of that and and I cried a lot, and I don't know if oh, that's wow. good. I I was crying. I just cry at everything these days. Um, <laughs> and like full disclosure, uh, like my dad died of cancer in 2018. So whenever I see something that has these hints of like father daughter relationship and somebody's terminal illness, I'm like, mm, like it it kind of pushes that button for me. Um, so of course I'm just like bucket of tears uh, right away. But uh, but I'm not sure if it's because the movie was good or it's just that idea of mm-hmm. the horrible feeling of watching someone die and you know there's nothing you can do about it yeah that's so that anyway i'm kind of like starting no, to get into okay. it delve into it more but um but yeah and then it just it's like okay and then she died and and it's over and um i i was i don't know how to feel about that <laughs> <laughs> so uh, this this is not for people who haven't seen this and i would gather that the listeners to our show probably haven't seen maggie because this is his like this is Current era, post-governorship Arnold, it's Arnold in his 60s, so Arnold is not moving like you would remember him in Terminator movies. And this also is not like a 28 Days Later Zombieland type of zombie movie where you're just like have protagonists that are assailed by fast-moving, scary zombies. Um, This is like the slowest of the slow burn zombie dramas that I've ever had. And yeah, drama is probably the, it's, the key word. I suppose yeah. at the time that it was made and probably conceived... It was because The Walking Dead was like ascendant at that point in time, right? Where it was Mm. like, let's make a drama and there's going to be some scary parts and some gore, but it's mostly about people. But it's kind of subverting the idea of what a zombie movie is against other zombie movies, but it's also subverting what an Arnold movie is. Mm -hmm. Because if you had told me, and I didn't know anything about this movie, that in 2015, there was a small budget, independent Arnold Schwarzenegger zombie movie. I would have an image in my head and it it would be really easy to picture it because it would be uh, probably direct to VOD Arnold Schwarzenegger against a lot of green screen. He has like a fire ax in each hand (laughs) and he's spouting off catchphrases and he's just mowing through 
a ton of zombies with bad CGI blood spurts everywhere. And saving a family member at the last moment and yeah. all the, those heroic. But And this movie has like one action scene and then the rest is like these pops of flashbacks. But there's not really like action the way you would traditionally think of it in a zombie film like you said there's there's not the the hordes chasing and the narrow escapes it's not really you see i mean if you if you don't count maggie herself you see three zombies in this movie or Or four if you count her her boyfriend oh the person in the convenience store right Mm -hmm. and the family the two the kid and the mom that's it right and the boyfriend and the boyfriend the boyfriend who's infected but hasn't turned yet so this is not a movie with Arnold Schwarzenegger being the unstoppable badass. This is not a movie about Arnold saving the day. This is about Arnold being too late to save the day. And now he just kind of has to live with the consequences. It's him getting through some pulled strings by his family doctor, stopping his daughter from being pulled into quarantine after she's been bitten, and just wanting to stay home with her and care for her as long as she has. And this is the kind of different thing between this and other zombie movies, because I, I really do think the scariest part of a zombie movie when in any, anyone, but both the the smart ones and the dumb ones is the post bite moment. Right. Because if you get bitten by a zombie, you're dead. And, you know, in 28 days later, you have 30 seconds to figure out what you're going to do with the last part of your life before you become a really angry cannibal. But in most movies, it's like a day or two. That, you know, you hide the bite and nobody knows and then suddenly everyone wakes to sleep and you're <coughs> and you're trying to bite people. But this movie, they draw that part out. This movie is about that expanded. And right. it's a very slow burn zombie plague. If you get bit, it's six to eight weeks before you turn. So you really have time to think about your life and know that you're dying and know that this this non-fatal wound, this bite on your arm that otherwise would probably be an infection in a skin graft. It's like, you're dead. There's nothing you can do. You made this tiny clumsy mistake or you were careless once and now you're dead and there's nothing that anyone can do about it. Everyone's going to treat you differently. And you have six to eight weeks. We're talking two months of sitting around uh, just thinking about that, watching your body fail you, watching your body visibly rot. And, Knowing that at the end of that, when you get close to it, that they're going to take you to some horrible government quarantine that sounds like they just throw you into a room and then give you a horrible shot that kills you in the most painful way possible. And this movie is about Arnold knowing he can't save his daughter's life, but trying to at least spare her that. So it's interesting is I thought about this. I saw this a couple of years ago. It's a different uh, experience watching this in the middle of a pandemic. Obviously... There was some really prescient commentary about how they're like, well, we have to open up the school so we can right. feel normal. And I'm like, ooh. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so so it does it does feel weird. And I mean, it isn't like this, the cities are smoldering and people are burning their fields. And like, it isn't that, obviously. It but, isn't, it isn't but like Road Warrior. It's more like Mad Max where society is there. Right. But it's like buckling under the weight of all of this. Like but there's I, no power. Like the idea of them listening to on the radio. This is the way they, this is, it's better that they do it this way than introducing a character which bad movies often do is they have a character to stand there and just like dump all the exposition they have time when arnold schwarzenegger is driving to the city and back from the city with his daughter and you're seeing all the crazy stuff that's happening and you're hearing on the radio like the newscasters being like the plague is in its second week and we've something something new infections and for that part i was like wow that 
kind of rings pretty true to now. And I almost, my first thought was, why don't these people turn off the fucking radio? Because I would really get sick of hearing it. Yeah. I'm, I'm sick of hearing it now when it's not zombies. Yeah, it's, um, it is definitely a weird place that we're in to watch this movie. We started this podcast in 2015, about the same year this movie came out. Yeah. And the idea of a global pandemic was just this, it was something very esoteric and hypothetical then. And hearing people talk about, like you said, reopening schools and, oh, we've turned the corner. We have fewer, uh, you know, infections. And, it, and this is literally a zombie movie and yeah. reopening the schools. And, and, I, and I kept asking myself through the whole movie because I was really hung up on it. Why was she going by herself to the city during a freaking zombie outbreak? And yeah. then I asked myself, why was everybody going out acting like nothing's wrong at the beginning of the pandemic when there was no vaccine? Because who knows why? Because right. they don't care. They don't think it's real. Florida had spring break 2020. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And so, I don't know, would they really act different um, if it was literally the, the necroambulist virus or, you know, what they <laughs> called it in this in this film? Um, maybe not. Like, they probably would still be, well, we, we, we got to open up these schools because the kids are going to lose their social skills. And I'm just like, oh, my God. I, I, what I did find amazing about this, and this is not the first time this has happened, um, Arnold Schwarzenegger is not the main character of this movie. Did yeah. you get that? Yeah, he's he's the he's so the character he you're following the, through the plot. But he's the co-star of he's this a movie, co-star. and Abigail this Breslin is, is the main character. Yeah, the supporting yeah. character. Yeah. Um, and of course, he still gets that that poster, uh, you know, yeah. visibility. But it, it is focusing more on her inner turmoil, and and their relationship is important, and especially the way that they choose to end the movie because you you think he's going to have to do it, and then she's right. like, actually, I'm going to spare you, you know. But but it is focusing on her relationships with her friends and her family and right. herself, and realizing, oh, this is real, damn. But just how quickly it changes everything. It isn't just that you're dying; yeah. it, it's that you're dying is dangerous to other people. And like one of the first things that you see when she gets home is uh, they're putting her brother and sister who are much, much younger than her, uh, who are the children of Arnold's second wife on a, on the, in the truck. And they're going to drive them to her aunt's house to keep them safe. And immediately there's a sense of I'm dangerous to them. And it changes the dynamic because it's like, I'm going to die. And this is the last time I'm going to see my brother and sister. And my youngest sister doesn't even know the older brother is old enough to figure it out because he had known some people at school who had died. But the sense of you have to kind of try to fake normalcy for the sense of this small child. And how do you even, I mean, maybe that's the question now, Casey, we live in the world that we do now. Yeah. How do you, what do you tell your kids and how do you shield them from a world like that and just go, oh yeah, your, your sister's going to die because she got bitten by somebody. Yeah, I think that especially when you're when you're dealing with young kids, but also in just like a parent child dynamic when you have an adult child and you have like a terminal illness situation, you know, to the very end, my my dad just kind of acted like, oh, you know, it'll be fine. Like not really acknowledging wanting to enjoy the moment and not focus on that so much, not like intentionally avoiding the subject, but just kind of like not wanting that to be the the dominating focus of every single thing. And you could kind of see that's what they're doing there. You don't want to upset the kids, right? And you don't want to scare them, even though they probably, they, they're already aware or they are of being... Course, of course they are. Yeah, they're being yeah. protected and they're, they're being put in a separate situation. But you want to make the most of the time. And, you know, that makes sense to an extent. But there's also something weird about the the element of not really acknowledging the reality of that. Mm-hmm. Because... Because uh, that's a sentence that said a lot in this movie, don't think about that. 
that now. Yeah, you're you're deprived of that closure because you always think there's going to be more time, or and you don't have the important conversations that you might have if you truly accept it and acknowledge it and be like, hey, I always want to talk to you about this, and or I need to tell you this, and like that that moment never really comes when you don't act like it's real. I mean. I, I can only partially relate in the sense that I am a cancer survivor, but I was a cancer survivor of very treatable cancer. Mm. But I can say that the worst moments are the ones where people don't treat you normally. Uh, when I was first diagnosed, I was in an emergency room. And I remember a moment where a nurse came in and got something or got something from me or said something to me and wouldn't look me in the eyes. And that was the worst moment. Wow. More than anything else. And it, it's not like... You know, you know, testicular cancer is eminently treatable, eminently survivable, but the C word, you know, whether it's definitely different than the Z word, but it's definitely, you know, the C word is scary and it doesn't matter what kind it is or how treatable it is or how many statistics you can give me on a piece of paper. It feels like you're dying in that moment. Yeah. And when somebody, and this is a weird way, I am so much more comfortable with a weird kind of casual flippancy that acknowledges the reality of the situation that I am with somebody trying to quietly, coldly, and politely like just kind of tiptoe tr- around it. Yeah. Or not even acknowledge it, especially a medical professional. You expect a certain degree of bedside manner mm-hmm. to where they can, you know, they shouldn't be affect per like they need to be professional and they need to convey information to you and make you feel like a, a human being and that they're going to help you. They're going to treat you. They're going to give you all the information that you need to the best of their ability. And if they can't even do that, you know, I feel like they're kind of in the wrong job because that's a hard role to be in. And, and you have to tell somebody they have cancer. You have to tell them what they, what their options are. Mm-hmm. Like, you yeah. need to be able to do that within a very particular way to not exacerbate an already challenging situation. I think yeah. that's one thing that I actually like about this movie that you could easily construct a poor, more poorly made movie. And I'm not saying that this is like a great movie by any stretch. I think it's I think it has a lot of interesting things about it. But a worse movie would have leaned into the doctors are evil sort of grievance that we see now, obviously, that there's like a conspiracy, a global conspiracy of doctors, and it's a pretty toxic, awful sort of idea to put. And this movie shies away from doing that. I like that they that the representative of the the of of the medical establishment is the family doctor who is basically just a decent guy, right? Who is someone who believes in the Hippocratic Oath, who knows the family, who knows Arnold Schwarzenegger, and is there basically being like. These are. I know that the, that you have a selection of bad options, so I'm just going to try to help you with any options that are there. They. It could have been like it could have been like the you know the 4chan version of this, which is like these are the agents of the global conspiracy that are trying to rob you of your life and liberty. You know, and they could have had a whole aspect to that, but it's unnecessary because in this movie, it's just about the the daughter and her relationship to Arnold Schwarzenegger and they don't like need to press the gas on any of that ridiculous movie plot stuff. Yeah, I think you know? it, like I think you touched on it before Chelsea the the analogy kind of for terminal illness or even the right to end your own life on your own terms is a major theme of this movie that she could get thrown into essentially a medical concentration camp and that her last memories are going to be awful that whatever little she has of her life, but being able to choose that, but also the impact that this has on other people. Like you can tell throughout this movie that her stepmother played by Jolie Richardson really does love her, but is scared and understandably scared that there's a point at which 
um, you're afraid to have your children near somebody who could turn and bite them. And you're scared and you're angry, but you have to sort of balance all of these different fears against each other. Um, yeah, she recognizes the warning signs that that she's right, that her illness is progressing. She's starting to, like, crave human flesh. And she goes and arms herself. And yeah. it's like, because she doesn't know what's going to happen. And, you know, eventually she makes the decision to go and, like, join the kids or whatever and be like, I have to get out of the house. And, and like, this is going to go too far. And um, and it's, it is hard to balance that because I don't think that she was being um, harsh or trying to, you know, hurt her feelings or anything. There is a real element of danger there where you don't know exactly when they're going to turn, you know, six to eight weeks. That's quite the time frame. What if yeah. you're in bed sleeping and, oh, guess what? It happened early, you know, like. And I think that's the real thing with Arnold's performance in this, because so much of this movie is Arnold sort of silently suffering. It's about yeah. quiet agony that he promised his his now dead wife that he would protect his daughter and he has failed at that and all he can try to do is make her comfortable and i think the real difference between arnold and every other character in the movie is that arnold deliberately chooses to make himself vulnerable to her to make her feel safe and normal well i also really got the sense that like he thought that he was going to really use his weapon to put her out of his misery, I don't think he was going to bring himself to do it. I, no. He was pretending to be asleep still when she came down the stairs, yeah. and you're like, yeah. he looked like she very well might start to attack him. I don't think he could do it. And no. he thought he could, but like he was maybe fooling himself. You can't really quite tell, but I think that's why she chose to make the decision of like, you know what, I'm not going to make you do that. I'm going to just go do this myself. I wonder if he would have let himself get bitten. I mean, that's what the other father did, right? And he was yeah. so affected when he went into the house of the other couple where the father locked himself in with his daughter and turned and wrote all the messages on yeah. the wall about, I love my daughter, and Arnold sheds an Arnold tear, yeah. which is pretty rare. Can, can I say that, no, I'm sorry to interrupt, oh, but can yeah. I say that this is a, uh, we've talked about it many times when you watch earlier Arnold movies and, you know, he needs a dialect coach and he's really wooden and it doesn't really matter because he's, he's his own special effect. The idea of it's kind of genius casting, not just because it turns your expectations on your head when you think you're going to. This is an Arnold zombie movie, like Mike said. He is at a point where he can show a type of vulnerability in his acting style. And he's not, you know, he's not Daniel Day-Lewis, um, but he can project a kind of a vulnerability that you would not have seen in an earlier Arnold movie in a way that doesn't pull you totally out of the story and be like, oh, it's Arnold acting. Um, he succeeds. I would say that if, it, if the goal here was to um, put Arnold in a movie that was basically just a drama that had some heightened moments in it, um, Arnold completely and totally sold that. Something he would not have been able to do 30 years before. Oh, I, I agree. We, I, I kept thinking to myself, what was like the the reason of existence for Maggie? And it's like, if nothing else, it is a showcase of Arnold's acting range and he has depth and he has range he can pull that off and it's believable and and like like I said I watched the, the I'm watching his performance and I get choked up and it's just you can feel the the humanity in those elements they're touching on um in those really heartbreaking exchanges and moments of realization and uh, the the terrible decisions they have to make and it is very it's affecting I don't I don't I'm not going to say it's like the best Arnold movie or the best movie ever made um, because it, there's no levity in this film. No, unfortunately not. Oh my God. And, it is so hard. It's a slog. And, to and it's of... a bit of the suffer porn sort of yeah. thing where you're just sort of like, well, how can we make these moments that you think are really good that are about 
like the moments when they're like in the car and they're listening to the Maggie song, you know, and they're, you can tell that there's that as both, both them as actors and the director is creating this moment that you recognize. You totally buy the relationship. Yeah, that's fantastic. But then there are way, way too many of just being like, oh, we're going to have to sit through this again. And oh, we're going to end up having to do that. I thought when I was doing this, that this is a, this is a story that is a 25 minute story. Um, and but because it's a film and it's because it's a movie, it's stretched out to ninety minutes, and so you really do, we really do expand that idea of going through that awful misery of it's, that. It's a miserable movie, but it's yeah. not like I don't think it feels like a movie that's bloated. Weirdly, I I think that all the stuff in it makes sense because all of it is building toward his final question about whether he can do this. Like when he goes to. The neighbor's house, the one who uh, she kept her husband and, and kid locked in that room way too late and they got out. Um, he's seeing the future there. When he looks at that gas station with attendant there, he sees this. The gas station attendant is clearly living out of that building. And there's this soiled mattress that has like black stuff on it. And you see that's the future of what her life is going to be. He sees all these hints of it. Um, he sees what he's looking forward to. And then when those two neighbors wander out onto his land, he tries so hard to talk to them. Yeah. Um, this is the, this is the real difference with Arnold. Not just the fact that most movies, he's this total unstoppable, unbreakable badass, but also the fact that so many of his movies, he's so acclimate, even when he's a regular Joe who falls into an adventure, that dude acclimates to violence like a duck to water <laughs> and he just doesn't in this movie he he kills two neighbors with an axe they don't show it they don't let you enjoy it yeah, they don't let it's it not be a, cool it's not heroic at all well, and, and they focus on his remorse and yeah. and how he feels he feels terrible about it like it, he tells his wife i think i saw something in his eyes and he just he he feels terrible about violence. He doesn't want to do it. And you can see how hard it was for him to do that. That's what it is. It's sort of like him knowingly walking into this dark place, knowing he can't save his daughter, but refusing to let her be there alone. And that's what I just love about the, this part of the movie is that Arnold's performance, I think, is one of the best I think he's ever given. Yep. Because I don't think a lot of his action movie peers from the 80s and 90s would have done this. It's Seagal wouldn't do this. Right. Well, and I was trying to think of like, is there another Arnold movie where he, what that's like majority dramatic, where he, he's not just playing something up for camp. He's not just, you know, being funny and, and spouting one-liners. And like, I couldn't really think of one that I know of. The closest would be... Um, End of Days, maybe? No. But well, that's done the, badly. What's the Jeff Bridges uh, movie? Stay Hungry. Stay Hungry, where he's basically playing a version of himself and it's more drama than anything else, mm -hmm. but he's also a self-parody, so it, it's just not even the same league. Yeah. I, I think the mom soliloquy, so they're sitting in the, he's fixing his truck, and so he's having that conversation about um, his wife and her mom who is who's dead, and the truck becomes sort of a metaphor about the rough, the rough parts about himself that she doesn't like, but he, but she comes to love, and um, that thing about his story about meeting uh, meeting his mom and the books and how their relationship changed him and opened up a part of him was, I think, the single best sort of beat of uh, scene of Arnold acting that he's done in his whole career. Um, there were a couple sort of attenuations of performance where I was like, sometimes it's hard for Arnold to make 
line reading seems somewhat naturalistic because of the Arnold voice voice and the persona. Mm-hmm. But I think the entire thing is so successful theatrically and it works so well that I was like, you could put that in the Oscar, you know, rest in peace reel and have it be like, this is the scene that you would want to say that Arnold has the, where the real feels moment, you know. For for me, it was like, I found my, like what really surprised me and took me aback was, was his interactions when he was trying to help his daughter and, and she's kind of freaking out and, uh, and his wife's getting upset and like, oh, we need to take her in. And he's just like doing this really quiet, like, don't. You know, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Uh, and you're, and it's really affecting him. And you can see how torn and hurt he is and, and how concerned he is for her and for his wife. And um, it is, it's brutal, but yeah. it's like, but that's good acting. He yeah. did, he, he definitely pulled that off in a meaningful way. And, it's and it's and a moment where everyone's motivations make absolute sense that she's also afraid for her husband yeah. because Arnold never hesitates to hold his daughter when she's upset or freaking out or crying. Oh yeah. And that's a dangerous thing to do. Yep. Yeah. And they were a little unclear about like the method of how exactly people get infected in this movie. Like, I guess it's by bites, but I was a concern when I was like, dang, you just used that knife that she was using to chop tomatoes to cut your finger yeah. off. And like, what if there was infected blood or something? Or, so or... They, they make that hint because the reason why people are burning their crops is because they make a mention of whether or not the virus might have had its genesis in plants. And that's why there's just a pall of yeah, smoke Yeah, there's like this around. simultaneous kind of dust bowl happening where yeah. plants are dying or weak and stuff. And that I, it, I don't know if these two things are connected, but it's heavily implied this may be where the zombie virus came from. Yeah, I was I was a little confused on that point. I was like, oh, maybe that's just kind of like something they're throwing in to make it a little bit look more apocalyptic in the yeah, background. Yeah, I, like, I think that's right. But but the, and like clearly they're not really interested in delving too deeply into the the details of like, well, who, how exactly do you become a zombie, and when, you know, what uh, triggers that event to happen? And like clearly, okay, she was bit. That's all we need right. to know. Yeah. So probably if she bites someone, then. That's what's going to do it. But I'm, I found myself, I'm fine with it and yeah. not showing that stuff. I think that there's kind of a disease in a lot of our, our movies nowadays where we over explain that stuff. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's not important to this story how yeah. that started or what the connection is. Well, there's it, enough hints that there's an outside world and all this stuff, and maybe the writers have an answer to it, but it's not relevant to the story between this guy and his daughter. It didn't bother me nearly as much as the, again, the opening shot and the phone call where she's like, I'm going to the city and don't follow yeah. me. What are you doing? And like right. that, I kept wondering that throughout the whole movie. So that's why it was important to me. I'm like, mm-hmm. why was she doing this? If it was for some higher reason, then like maybe it would have affected the story and the way I saw her and what she was trying to do. And like, but I just couldn't help but think. I th- I was so pissed at her the whole time. Like, why would you endanger yourself? I think she was already bit. When she left? I think that that's why she went to the city. Because there's so many ways. You don't really have to contrive when it comes Mm -hmm. to a zombie. There's so many ways that you could, even through no fault of your own, you're trying so hard, and then the zombie breaks in, and despite your best efforts, you got bit. You know, something happened. Or somebody that you thought didn't get bit was hiding it, and then you were vulnerable to it. There's so many different ways. And they just kind of like... Well, she was bit and he couldn't protect her. And that's super depressing. And that was his only promise to his right. wife. And just like, I'm so mad about all this. I, th- I think the, I mean, uh, the the simplest answer usually is so the story can happen. And I think yeah. it's it was a convenient way for you to be like, oh, we can visually show you what the world looks like by his trip there and his trip back. You can understand, oh, they're in this weird police state and there's this quarantine state or whatever. So 
it's good that, like I said, that they didn't have like a person standing, uh, standing in as exposition telling you these stuff. They just could have sort of did this in the first 10 minutes and then they got home. I do kind of like the, the fact that they make you do a lot of the work in your head a little bit. Yeah. I, and maybe it's just because I don't see that a lot in movies nowadays. I think the last blockbuster that did anything like that was the movie Logan, where the question of where are all the X-Men, that answer is in the movie, but you kind of have to put pieces together in three completely separate scenes where little tiny hints of things add up and you can kind of guess that. And I think that's kind of what they do here, which is the real question is, is the lore of the backdrop of all this stuff important to what this story is about? And if it's not, it's better to just hint at it. Like the power is out in the house, but nobody makes a big deal about saying it until the Arnold's in that conversation with the cop who asked him why he's chopping wood. And he says, yeah, well maybe if you got the power back on, I wouldn't have to do this every day. Mm-hmm. The fact that he has sort of a generator going, and there's lanterns in the house. They just, they're there. There's a scene where they go upstairs and there's a part of a wall that seems to have been pulled away. And I don't know if that's what they took to board up windows or something. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, yeah. But there's definitely a, a decay in the world. Uh, there's trash on things, um, empty shelves at the convenience store. There's curfews. Yeah, I mean, but the important part about it is not that it is a totally fully comprehensible world and scenario. The important part is that it's a backdrop, a motif for the this character, the main character. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So for all the things you've I said. I freely admit I can get too hung up on like in-depth world building because there's oh, some other course. films where it just contributes so much to your appreciation of, of, the, of the backdrop and the landscape that this is happening in and the characters and their motivations um so i i get hung up on dumb things like that but uh well you're not the only one yeah. i mean but it's hard not to like the Zack snyder movie army of the dead is one where oh, they God. they spent the first 20 minutes including like a must have been a very expensive opening credit scene doing all of that like world building lore stuff for you because it's so important especially with the zombie zombie movies i don't know why it's so important for us to have like a fully built out world now because franchises yeah and there's also a good good that this is a movie where they're never going to make a Maggie two. Yeah, <laughs> and they shouldn't kind of, because it's not that kind of movie. It's it's not that kind of world, and um, I don't want to watch another '80s action star suffer because his kid is dying. <laughs> oh, I know uh, the, the the first round was oh god, it's it's just kind of an an emotional assault of like here's 90 minutes of incredibly depressing events happening again, kind of in slow motion, like watching a train wreck, and you're just and you can't look away, but you're just right. oh this is t- I feel horrible for everyone. <laughs> <laughs> I I don't know why this happened. I'm a, I'm confused. I'm upset. I need more Kleenex. Yeah, and <laughs> and this is the funny part. We so we talk a lot about that Arnold past a certain point in his career. If Arnold signs on to do a project, the screenwriters like take the pen out again and start adding stuff for Arnold. You know, like mm-hmm. um, there's going to be more one-liners and there's going to be more humor and there's going to be more action and catchphrases. This. this is this is a movie that has no Arnold catchphrases. This is a movie that gives Arnold. A couple of moments where he has to wield some violence, but you know it could be Steve Buscemi doing it right. If it was anyone else, he just has to. So this is no one took a different pass of this script because Arnold's on the project, so we need to fucking juice up the juice up the action in this scene. It never happened. That's what makes it such a strange, rare bird. And 
interestingly enough, I don't think Arnold's going to do this sort of thing again. It's, no, it's it is it's a weird blip. In it's a, a one off. It's, it's very fascinating to see that happen. But yeah, yeah, they're leaning entirely, very heavily upon the acting chops here. Yeah. That's what has to yeah. pull it off. Yeah, and I think that's that's when he really steps up. That's the thing that surprises you. It isn't a special effect. It isn't plot it's, twist. It's, yeah, it isn't a plot twist. It's it's the performances that you go into a movie and it so it surpasses the oftentimes intentionally depressed expectations that you have of Arnold as a dramatic actor. And, and one of the things I got from doing this podcast for a long enough time is I have so much more respect for him as an actor than I did before because he actually is really good. Not just because he really does have a very natural screen presence that makes him easy to watch, but because he is capable of doing something at this point in his career, that isn't just a victory lap. And that's what you look at Bruce Willis. Bruce Willis is a really talented actor who has been incredibly lazy for two decades. <laughs> and that's a good stretch. I remember reading <laughs> a, him. There was a review of um, the movie Glass, which was kind of the long, uh, long delayed sequel to Unbreakable. And I remember reading a review where they said, they're so used to movies where it's like Bruce Willis just sleepwalks through things and he doesn't seem to care. He doesn't really raise his voice. There's no emotion in his delivery. He seems to be sitting down a lot in a lot of things. <laughs> and they said there was this scene where they're like, oh, my God, Bruce Willis is really good in uh, Glass. And they're like, but then I realized it was a repurposed scene from Unbreakable. And it was the same thing that happened with Harrison Ford in The Force Awakens. I was like, oh my God, Harrison Ford is really good. Why don't I get this all the time? And I think a lot of action ones. I mean, Seagal lives in this place now. Yeah, he does. Where apparently there are movies where he does... Do I have to get up and fight that guy? Can't I fight him from sitting in this chair? <laughs> well, I've got my slippers on and yeah. my, my jam jams. Do I have to try? Can I just appear on the DVD? I'm in 30 minutes of the movie and then I get my paycheck and leave. Um, there's a lot of that. And it would be the easiest thing in the world for Arnold to do that at this point of his career. And in fact, a lot of the stuff that he's done after being governor kind of feel like it's a nostalgia thing. It's like, oh, hey, remember me? Isn't it cool to see me in this thing? Or it's funny that Arnold Schwarzenegger turned up. So you have something like The Expendables, which is entirely based on based on nostalgia. Um, everyone shows up in that, and it's just it's cool to see Jet Li and um, Stallone and and Dolph Lundgren and all these guys. And then Arnold makes a cameo in the sequels and stuff. And that's the whole point. It's, it's about pushing that happy, warm endorphin button that reminds you of a thing that you liked when you were a kid. And But it doesn't challenge you and it doesn't stretch you. And it feels like this is this rare take, kind of like JCVD, of a, a person bit. who could just coast, choosing to do something that challenges them as an actor. And I think Arnold has always been very careful about stretching himself, but I think he always chooses to stretch himself just a little. And I think this is probably one of the biggest swings he's ever taken. Yeah, no, that's a really good point because the the thing that you said about how he can show up and and it's fun and it's like we Arnold you know, and that's kind of his outlook too because that whenever you have these interviews with him about like his appearance in uh, Terminator Dark Fate for instance he's he's just like yeah I like Terminator movies and I like to be in the movie <laughs> and movies are fun and I want to be in them and it's like that's the extent of his passion for the role and and that is it kind of comes through it's not the best Terminator movie it's not the worst but you're like there's Arnold doing Arnold things and it feels very familiar and I can just put that 
that sweater right on and, yeah. and you know how it's going to feel. But um, but it wouldn't say it was like, oh, this was groundbreaking Arnold. Of course, like, this no. is the, the role that defines his career, right? That's what he's all about. So this is definitely out of, out of his comfort zone. Well, I, uh, I'm a fan of movies. I'm definitely a fan of Arnold movies. Uh, the part that bugs me the most about this movie, and I understand why they did it. Uh, I mean, I'm, I watch on October comes along i watch horror movies all month long um this fell into a type of a a type of a, fa- a fashion of film for especially for low budget movies and it is the handheld slightly out of focus shaky cam stuff which i understand why they used it but it it takes me out of the it's like hearing the wilhelm scream in a movie it takes me out of the movie because i'm like cinematographer and the director this is is code for we don't have a real plan about how we're going to block and shoot this scene. We've got everything lit and we're going to have the camera floating around here in a movie like this. It actually probably works better than other movies because it's really just about characters talking to each other in a scene. Um, but I really don't like it. And uh, there's, I mean, I just saw rewatched pig last night with my wife, uh, the um, Nicholas cage, Nicholas cage yeah. movie. And it was, it's a movie that has a similar color tone to this and has a similar sort of free floating style. But in that movie, the, the, they would choose to anchor a shot in one point and have maybe there be a slow focus pull or something that's actually happening that allows a scene to just be that part of the scene. And my problem is, is that for all of the good stuff that this movie ends up doing about the reactions between characters and those moments in them. So I feel like when they're using this, like, Oh, it's gotta be a soft focus and things are going to pull out of focus and you're moving around and you're, you're, you're cutting every four seconds. Um, I think does a, does a disservice to the story that they're trying to create because this, this edgy style that is all the rage of shooting these sorts of things. And I really just don't like it. That could be that your mileage may vary, yeah. but that was the part of it that was harder for me to be like, just stop it. Just make a nice shot sometimes and let the scene be the scene and don't, don't be keep cutting around in it because you wanted the stupid look, you know? Yeah. I, I mean, I don't think visually it's bad at all. I think... I think it's there's, super there's... muddy and washed out and not very well defined, unfortunately. Um, it doesn't... I, it has a look to it, but... It I does t- have a look, yeah. and I do like that because it would be so easy for this to just have everything in focus and be sort of really cheap I mean, video. It's, it's not a haunted house movie, right? Like, it's no. not a... You're not, you're not going to have these well-constructed shots because you want to see, like someone trip and fall and a ghost pop out or something it's not that but what i'm saying is that i think it it's fuzzy and there's nothing about the cinematography that uh is notable or beautiful and there's unfortunately i think the cinematography ends up doing a disservice to the performances because of how muddy and wishy-washy and gross it is well and, and when it feels like the whole purpose of this film which is already like kind of slow pacing is to just like really linger on oh, the, yeah. the feeling and the mood and like when it starts to feel like a tiktok video and everything is like rapid fire cuts that can be a lot for me that i didn't notice that as much it didn't detract so much for me what what's really distracting for me is like found footage type moves when they're running and yeah. and it feels like somebody's literally holding a camera and it's pointing all over the place and you don't know up from down and that's like really hard to follow so at least i'm like okay i can see what's going on on the screen and maybe that's just a testament to how much our um collective standards have been have been lowered <laughs> um i can right. only ask so much but uh <laughs> but um, oh, it can go lower. But I, yeah, is that a, a challenge? But I, so my my complaints were all basically about the the story and what was the 
what was the purpose of the story? Yeah. What was what were they trying to make me feel? Because I'm so sad. This is so. This is you, we watched. We're getting it. into kind of the first question here, right. now. Yeah. But I, I just want us. This is the moment. The thing that I had written down is uh, you watched. It comes at night, mm-hmm. which is a movie. Similar vibes to this movie, but a com- sort of a different. The inevitable idea. descent into yeah. something dark and sad um, is that I had the that I had the question about the same thing as this. As I had it comes at night is what possesses a person, a director or a writer or a small number of people as a crew, to want to deliver this to spend a year or two delivering this kind of movie into the world uh, because it's really sad and it's really hard to get through and it makes me feel like. Was it a fun process to make this movie? Was it fun to act on it? I, I don't think every piece of art has to make you feel good. No, but, I, I, I know you agree with me on that. Yeah, I mean, there's some yeah. movies. I'm just that, saying, what is the d- motivation of the director? Because you got to s- probably sit around feeling pretty awful. Well, I think <laughs> I think on some level you want to you want to show an amazing performance from an actor that people largely discount. Sure. Um, you want to subvert expectations of both the subgenre of horror that you're dealing with. Um, but also the star, you know, you think that there's an idea of a zombie movie. There's an idea of an Arnold movie and this is neither of those things, but I guess we're kind of dancing around the, the, the big two questions at the end. The first one is, is Maggie a good movie? Well, um, for my part, if somebody were to come to me and, and ask what is the movie I, I should watch today, or what is even the Arnold movie I should watch? I don't know if I'd recommend it to somebody because I, I don't know what I would say in terms of being like, you should watch this because, and then fill in the blank. Like <laughs> if, if I want, if I were to recommend a, a drama or a sci-fi or a Zomba movie or, or an Arnold movie, I would, there's like three or four or five other films that I would think of first before. And I'm just like, because I, I was just depressed and I, I felt unsatisfied at the mm. end. Um, you are so brave. <laughs> this was, I'm just going to say thank you. We're, we're not ending the podcast, but I want to say thank you. Cause you're like, can we give someone who we've never met before an assignment to just watch a terribly depressing movie and come through on the other side? And you did it. So thank you. Yeah, well, appreciate it. And, then, and so I was interested when I saw it because the premise, you, you, as soon as I see the poster, I'm just like, Ew, like what, what's going on here? Mm-hmm. And then like, what? what's the, I assume, you know, oh, zombie thriller, but like, oh, wait, no, it's not that type of zombie movie. But maybe my expectations have been so uh, molded by the genre that I kept expecting. And this is the twist when the father goes and heroically finds the cure and saves the daughter. Or right. this is like, oh, and there's hope. And like, no, there is no hope. It's just, it's just a slug to the end. And um, I don't know if I enjoy crying yeah. watching a movie repeatedly and knowing there's no hope when it's just like I don't there's so much of that in real life and like as a showcase for Arnold's talents yes if if you would like to see Arnold and his dramatic chops and um for sure then this would be the film to pick but if you if i was just to say here's a movie that you'll enjoy for xyz reasons <laughs> i don't know that i like enjoy being super sad and depressed and confused for 90 minutes yeah. like i think i'm going to mirror her as i can recognize the strength of the things that are interesting i'm i'm not likely to rewatch this movie again this is my second time that i watched the movie in 2 years uh and uh for all of the reasons that we talked about before, the completionist, the Arnold completionist, <laughs> this is right up your alley. If you're going to be like, I love everything Arnold does, even the things that are big misses, the big swings and the big misses. Um, 
if I get, I suppose there are still people that have a mindset that's like 2011, where if it says zombie on it, they're going to watch it no matter what. I would recommend this to pers- people who like zombie movie because it's a little different. But I'm not going to watch this movie again. I I don't know. I I like it. I'll champion it, but um, I, I it's not not it's not a fantastic movie. No, I I'm sort of in the same boat with you, where I think it's a good movie that is elevated by really good performances where I think there are flaws in it. There's flaws in the script. There's, there's flaws. The dialogue isn't always the strongest in the world. Um, It probably would benefit from another draft, but I think despite all of those flaws, it really comes down to Arnold Schwarzenegger and Abigail Breslin who both really push this and make this so much better than it has a right to be. I kind of find it refreshing when a movie is unwilling is willing to be this unflinching. Yeah. Um, but like you said, that's not a movie that I'm going to watch a bunch of times. It's sort of like the Darren Aronofsky movie Mother, which <laughs> I'm definitely not going to watch again. That if you want to know what I, I'm going to call it a gaslighting simulator. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there, like there's movies that I would I have seen that I would say. I'm glad I watched it, but I don't know if I'll watch it again because yes. it was a lot or, or like it hit me a certain way and I don't think it's going to hit me a second way a second time because there was a surprise or a twist or something like that. And with this one, it's just like, yeah, I know what it was. And like, I was sad. Do I need to be that sad again in the future? I don't know. Maybe there's another way I could spend that 90 minutes to watch a different movie with a different message. But um, oh, I just kept looking for like... What is what is the message they're truly trying to convey here? And with the story, even if it was, like imagine it wasn't an Arnold movie, it's mm-hmm. just a father losing his daughter, and you have to watch that. That is so hard to watch, and um, it makes me think of this phenomenon that I see a lot in reality. Like, uh, so Melissa McCarthy just has this movie that came out recently about infant loss. Starling. Starling. Yes, yeah. thank you. And I have a friend who experienced that, and she was like, "Oh my God, you guys." Please stop recommending Starling to me because <laughs> because this is literally like triggering my PTSD and it's, and it's upsetting and I understand you mean well but I don't know why you think this is something I need to see and that's kind of the way that I feel uh, like when you go through like obviously this is a zombie movie that's not right. something that happens in reality but the feeling about what losing someone and being helpless to stop it is just like it can create certain feelings right. of people it, who have who have experienced that it doesn't matter that this is a zombie loss. movie because once you've got over the disbelief of the premise of a zombie movie all that's left are the emotions that are there yeah. and the emotions are what the movie is about it, yeah exactly yeah. it is an it is a vehicle for delivering um an emotional experience about a very specific relationship between this father and daughter and it, it, it is heart-wrenching to watch and and this and that's another reason that especially depending upon the audience i might not specifically recommend that to them because I, I know how it made me feel and i'm like it, it might touch those feelings right. it might touch those nerves yep exactly so i guess that gets us to our second question is maggie a good arnold movie uh, it doesn't have anything you we've said it all it doesn't have any moments that feel like an like a fun Arnold movie, um, and so like I said, beyond the people that just would like to check off all the boxes for Arnold, this has no this would have no appeal for lovers of Commando. It's <laughs> <laughs> not going to. So no. Yeah. If if you envision Arnold um, as the eternal, you know. Mr. Olympus swooping in to save the day at, with guns blazing, and that is like the the form in which you enjoy Arnold at his prime. Like this is the polar opposite of that. Yeah. So if you, but if you like 
like you said, kind of just have an interest in zombie movies, every approach, every feel, something that is more focused on the character or something that is focused on the action or everything in between, then maybe this will be interesting for you. But just keep those thematic elements in mind um, because Arnie Arnie does a good job, but someone else could have also told this story. It didn't need to be Arnold necessarily. It's interesting to see him in this role because he's out of his element and there's a fish out of water appeal to it. Um, But he and he does a good job. I will give him that. But of all the Arnie movies I would ever pick on a Saturday evening to just bust <laughs> out and like, I'm going to grab the popcorn and yeah. it, it probably wouldn't be this one. <laughs> and this movie's also going to hit in a really weird way now, specifically yes. in a global pandemic. Yes. Um, I'm also going to say no, but it doesn't mean that Arnold's bad in it. I think that's the exact opposite. I think Arnold is really good in this movie, but it doesn't have the the feature of an Arnold movie how do we say absurd macho bullshit? <laughs> uh, it doesn't yes. have that element yeah. and it's the exact opposite of it. And it's intended, it's intentional and it's deliberate. Um, I think he's great in this. And I also think that this is probably one of his best performances in any movie. Mm-hmm. It's, it's at least top three of anything that he's ever done. And it's, at a time in his career when he could just coast on nostalgia and he's choosing not to. And that to me makes it the most interesting movie that he's done after leaving the governorship. He could just be doing direct VOD Seagal stuff or any of the cheap nostalgia bait that Stallone does a lot with the exception of course of Creed. Expendables 27. Exactly. (laughs) It it is Expendables. It's like, we just kind of want do the thing that you did before, but now you have bad knees. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Asking that's the real uh, challenge of a performance at this age. It's like, Oh, we're asking Arnold to be dramatic. We're asking Arnold to run like Tom Cruise. Like he's still in his like twenties and thirties while hauling 30 pounds of weaponry and gear. And like, yeah, it just does. It's not going to happen. It's unreal. So, but I've got a question. Is this before or after Aftermath? I think this is before. Is okay. Aftermath another, another suffering Arnold movie? It's another <laughs> suffering Arnold movie, but I think that has more has more action movie elements because oh, okay. he wants to kick some ass. I don't we I haven't we I don't think either I haven't of us seen, have seen it yet. That. Have you seen Aftermath before? I had not heard oh, of that. I actually okay. hadn't heard of this one either. So I'm not super well versed in the lesser known Arnold canon. L- late Arnold is as bizarre as we just <laughs> witnessed. Yes. But you know, it's not Terminator 8, and that makes me happy, honestly. That's that's true. Is that of all the things that we talk about with upcoming Arnold projects, um, whether it's a sequel to Twins or another Conan movie or another, another, another Terminator movie, (laughs) um, I'd rather him do stuff like this that stretches him. I don't mean necessarily I want him to do like lots of Arnold quietly suffering movies, <laughs> but I want him to stretch himself and I'd rather yeah. him do some more interesting things like this because I think he's capable of it and it's uh, so easy to be lazy. Let me plant an idea in your head and in for Arnold's ca- uh, agent, which I know obviously listens to this program, septuagenarian rom-com. Oh, that's the, where else do you go with him? Yeah. I, I think you can do something. I th- he's got a clear, you know, He's got comedic chops that I think that he gets kind of underrated for. He's got good comedic timing, very expressive face. Well, and, and that's the other thing that they like to do. When we think of Arnold out of as fish out of water, it's always he's a Mr. Mom character and then he's chasing the kids and or like Arnold's pregnant and haha, this is so funny. We're subverting the super macho uh, strongman archetype that he has all but created his entire career. And like now he's like like dad guy or like super funny, like 
uh, slapstick guy, right. and and that's like the funny thing. But he, but there's other genres, and there's other there's other ways to explore that. I would like to see this train of thought continued. Like yeah. I would love to see more of that side of Arnold because um, it was he's he's entertaining to watch here, and he and he gets that character across well. Um, I just wish it was a a slightly different story that didn't make me um, feel like I need to go and call the EAP. (laughs) (laughs) Chelsea Rustad, I want to thank you again for coming on today. Um, Thank you for joining us. If people want to hear more about you, about the Puget Sound Socialist Party, your book, or any other things that you're working on, where can they find that? Oh, well, I I would love to uh, have you come and check out our, uh, we have a Facebook page for Puget Sound Socialist Party um, that you're always welcome to come and uh, peruse, which has a URL for our website and a Discord link so you can come and chat with us online. Ooh, a Discord link. Ooh. Tasty. <laughs> yes, very nice. I, I have a, progressed past Facebook groups as finally realizing there's other ways to correspond with people. So have we. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And, um, and if you're interested in my book, it's kind of a, a, a weird thing that if you're local to Washington or near Everett, you might have heard about this story um, about how my uh, second cousin, uh, William Earl Talbot II, was convicted of murder because I won an Ancestry DNA kit um, in 2015, and he was identified through reverse engineering a family tree. So if that's a story that's interesting to you, it was kind of groundbreaking at the time because he was the first person who was uh, actually uh, went to trial and found guilty because of this genetic genealogy new technique. Like um, then I wrote about it in my book. It's called Inherited Secrets, and it, uh, I have a website. You can learn more about it. Cool. I want to read it. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> so thanks again, Chelsea. Yeah. And a special thank you to our episode sponsors. We now have 18 of them. Ah, I, it's like I was listening to a to a back episode, which is not all that long ago, and it was like 11. So we've just grown leaps and bounds. So we're, Thanks, we're doing everybody. pretty well. We might yeah. lose some people after how depressing this movie was. <laughs> but a special thank you. To- oh, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, Arnold, go ahead. Arnold is going to be very sad if you guys don't continue sponsoring the show. So thank do it for Arnold. A single manly tear. So uh, thank you to Larry Brunswick, Margaret King, Tim Batson, Dan Neidecker, Don Tuvey, Zuri Russell, Sterling Taylor, Tom the Belgian, Wim the Belgian, Misa the Barbarian, James Brucker, Gus Lindgren, Jem Newman, Carol and Dave Brulette, Kelzone, Kalen, Matt Weber, and Hans Twite. So thank you, folks. We love you. Uh, if you want to become an episode sponsor like those fine folks, go to patreon.com slash radio versus the Martians or click the big red button on our website. It's either on the top or if you're on your phone, the very bottom, podcastalavistababy.com. And until then, we will catch you guys next month. Podcast de la Vista Baby is a production of Radio vs. the Martians and is hosted by Mike Gillis and Casey Doran. This podcast is recorded in beautiful Val Verde in Seattle, Washington. Our chief engineer is Casey Doran and our editor is Mike Gillis. Our original theme music was written and performed by James Wetzel with opening narration by Dan Lombardo. Special thanks to Sam Mulvey, Rob Kelly, James Wetzel, Paul Rue, Tobias Panshin, Scott Kramer, Kyle Hepworth, and Dan Lombardo. Please take the time to rate and review our show on iTunes and Stitcher and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. And if you'd like to support the show financially, please consider becoming one of our Patreon subscribers. Even just a dollar a month gives you access to exclusive episodes. And finally, you can find us online at podcastalavistababy.com and radioversusthemartians.com.
You spent two weeks out there looking for me? Yeah. Promise your mother that I will protect you. Yeah, but what about you guys? What if I hurt you? Don't worry. Caroline and I we know the precautions. You shouldn't have brought me back. 